Welcome to my Missioners podcast. I'm Karina Givarkasov, the founder of Mission Magazine, the first and only fashion philanthropic interactive media platform. And our tagline is for fashion, for beauty, for good. If you're new to these, I do them generally with my dear friend Charlene Spiteri. She's the singer-songwriter from the UK band Texas. Our next guest is British entrepreneur Tobias Peggs, whose real focus is on bringing real nutritious food to everyone. We talk about the average age of a farmer being 58 years old in America and what that means for the future of farming. We learn really about the fantastic idea of having an upcycled shipping container in a Brooklyn car park that is the HQ of Square Roots. The simple goal being for cities to have access to locally produced healthy food and what is grown in those containers, their reach and their limitations. We also talk about their great next-gen training program. Please stay tuned for this one. The excitement in Charlene's voice is very, very real. Take good care, everyone, and thank you always for listening. Hello, sir. It's been some years since we've connected. Well, it's certainly been a long time, uh, that's for sure. I'm just making sure all my headphones are uh, connected here and you've got everything you need from me. <laughs> I am so, this is this is Charlene Tobias. I'm so excited to do this today. I'm literally like beside myself because I haven't done a, a podcast for like a couple of, like a, a while because I've just been, I, I dare to say, super busy in lockdown. No, I've just been doing loads of stuff, recording and everything. And, and literally it's just this, you couldn't have literally hit me with any better of a yes that we we have today which i said to Kina, i went oh my god i've got so many questions <laughs> <laughs> well i'm very very flattered uh number one and yeah i'm very curious to hear all about that your recording i was listening to a couple of other podcasts that that you know have happened while i guess you've been gonna say in the studio but maybe that's even different during covid it is well welcome back and i hope i live up to your expectations <laughs> well i'm very sure you will And you guys have a connection already, which Tobias, you told me the other day, and I actually shared that with Charlene. Yeah, I was so surprised. Yes, yes. From ID Magazine to Urban Farmer. There are a few few steps in in the middle. Uh, But yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, messing around. I would would describe it in, uh, you know, lifestyle magazines and whatever in the mid-90s. And uh, yeah, that, that Craig McDean cover. Um, I think that was one of the first ones when I was working at ID full time. Really? Oh, that was that was a total dream team. I mean, Craig did the photograph. You had Pat McGrath on makeup, um, Eugene Solomon doing hair, and yeah. Edward and Edward Enifold styling. I mean, seriously, does it get? Any- it doesn't totally. Oh, I I couldn't remember actually all all of those credits. So that is. I mean, it's the dream team. It's the dream team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I you know, I, I worked there for for two or three years, and um, yeah, I go as far to say I was an, an imposter. Really, it was sort of a interesting way, you know, how I got in. The the internet was happening. I was a big uh, sort of you know geek um, and an early um, adopter on the internet. And you know, lot long story short, I ended up publishing the the UK's first online music magazine. Oh wow! Um, and through that, a, a woman called Avril May, who was the editor of, of ID at the time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, to her credit, you know, she was very early. Uh, sort of, you know, as, as you would do in that job, right? Spotting early trends and whatever, and sort of saw what we were doing, and, and it asked me to start contributing to the magazine. Long story short, I ended up working there full time for two years under her direction. And yeah, to be in a room with someone like Edward, you know, who at the time would have been what mid twenties, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, what is already, you know, very clearly a, a genius and would go on to great things. But, you know, that was when he was flowering <laughs> and you would just watch, you know, watch this, you know, these like petals unfurl in front of you and just like rolling out with creative genius. Although I just couldn't believe how lucky I was to be in that environment. It's, um, it's incredible. I'm watching what he's gone on to do now. It's, oh, it's just it's amazing. 
has that world had any influence on, you know, because when when you look at what what you've done with Square Root and everything, I mean, I know you come from a tech back, background and AI and everything, but in that world, has that influenced? I mean, because just even looking at the containers that you grow in and everything, it's so beautiful and stylish and just, you know, has that had any influence on how this stuff looks and I mean even looking at the website and everything I mean obviously I do know that that's where, you, where the ground, background you come from but has that influenced you? That is so insightful and you're the honestly you're the, the first person to ask me that but you are so true in, in many ways I, I sometimes curse Edward actually that he <laughs> taught me <laughs> he taught me what I call the I Right, it was yes, yes, yes. standing behind Edward, watching or you know looking him pick you know the the right one of fifty seven different photographs that should be on the cover, um, you know and, and and you know sort of begin just watching his process and seeing that and of course then you can't help but start to pick up some of that yourself, and 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 so that then translates today to okay I'm building a farm inside a rusty shipping container that is located on a parking lot in an industrial estate in Brooklyn, but it's got to look beautiful. <laughs> it has to look beautiful. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. Oh, well, uh, yeah. And it does, it does. And look, the packaging, you know, just even looking at the packaging and using the QR codes to, you know, trace the history of the food and everything. I mean, I was literally looking at it and going, this is so tasteful. And, and I'll be honest, I will buy, you know, food, like depends on on you know recyclability um, and how it's packaged and how it looks and your eye is drawn to something on a shelf if you think oh you know I've been buying milk recently and I have to be honest with this milk is amazing milk it's pure Jersey milk but it comes in a beautiful big glass bottle and yeah it's a bit more expensive but the thing is I'm like it's in glass it's you know I can take the bottle back and have it refilled and and suddenly you know that so my eye is first drawn to the product and then I'm looking at what the product actually is afterwards yeah it's the whole experience right the the product is elevated into that experience and uh, you know I've never honestly but I've never been asked about this so I haven't really thought about it but top ahead I'm thinking you know, ID Magazine, when we would, you know, there were like 18 of us, I think, in the office at the time producing that magazine. And it didn't matter how well run the month was, the final two days were always this mad dash to, you know, reorganize all the pages. And Terry Jones would come in and change everything at the last minute. And, you know, it was always like an all-nighter the night before you went to publication. But what, what we were doing there is making sure that when someone picked it up off a, you know, W.H. Smith's shelf a week later, it was an experience, right? They took it home. I think the tagline at the time, right, was the you know the lifestyle bible or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Was, right. um, uh, you know, I, I still have all the copies of you know ID and the and the face, quite frankly, from the you know from the nineties. They're all there in a box in my parents' loft back home in Cornwall. And uh, you know, it, it's a little time capsule for me, right? It's it, it not only documents the music I was into, or the movies that I was watching, or the clothes that I was wearing, but somehow it captures the experience that I was going through um, at, at that point in time. And I, I think I think you're right. You know, all of those elements combine to elevate what can be a simple, humble product into this beautiful experience. Yeah. I hope that makes sense and doesn't sound yes, it does. my God. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Are you joking? It totally makes sense. Um, I think, Charlene, you should explain why you're so excited to speak to Tobias and what you were doing today. You're out in the garden. So, um, Tobias, basically, my husband is a chef and he has restaurants. He has a couple of restaurants. Um, he's one in London. He has one in North Wales and he has um, a place over in Switzerland. And um, five years ago, we bought um, uh, some land, um, a house and some land in Wales. So we only have 25 acres, but we basically started growing all our own fruit and veg to supply to the restaurants. So we started doing that. And I've been in Wales since lockdown. I mean, we still go between London and Wales, but we don't at the moment. But um, our daughter is just about to finish sixth form. And, you know, the decision is that once that happens, that, you know, 
we'll be more in Wales than we will be in, in London. And, um, you know, so we grow all our own fruit and veg and everything. But today I've been, I've been out maintaining trees today um, because, you know, that, that's the thing that people don't know is, is that, which is so interesting, you know, looking at what you're doing um, and talking about changing farming. And I mean, I couldn't believe when I read um, the previous stuff that you'd said that the average farmer is 58 years old. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, hard work. You know, it's really, and it's really physical. It's time consuming. Um it's amazing when the weather's good, but as you know, here in the UK, that's not a lot. Um, and, you know, there's there's so much maintenance to be done, like, you know, looking at what's round about us in the trees and everything that, that have to be looked after so that don't rot in on themselves and to keep that alive. But amazing that, that just I was just so absolutely, I, I got obsessed, like I'm going, Oh my God, I told my brother-in-law who looks after all the land and grows everything for us here. He was an engineer um, and he gave that up and became, he's now a farmer for us. And when I was talking about it today, he was like, I says, I was like, you know, they do it in crates. They do it in these amazing, and, and I was showing him all the stuff. On, he was like, oh my God. And he was freaking out. He was so impressed. Like literally we've, honest to God, it's like, it's like watching farm porn watching <laughs> what you and that was literally like you were literally beside ourselves going, and I got so excited and that's why I'm literally like just freaking out to talk to you today well th- thank you uh, I mean that, that that really means a lot and, and you're right you know traditional farming is very very hard work um I th- you know for us when we were when we were sort of putting the, the business together four or five years ago we were looking at other like major issues with with um, you know what what's known in the U.S. as conventional farming, um, which is where most of our food comes from, right? And these are huge industrial scale um, farms, often in California or Arizona. Um, you know they're very water intensive. That use a lot of pesticides. Um, then all of that food is shipped all over the country, all over the world, right? So by the time the end consumer gets that food, it's probably been harvested two or three weeks ago. Exactly. In order for the food to look good on the supermarket shelf, it's either picked, you know, way before harvest or the nutrients haven't quite, you know, fully baked in yet, or, you know, the the seeds are genetically modified to make it good to transport without really caring about how it tastes or what the nutrient value, you know, is. And the whole thing's a, a disaster um you know and and it's a big money disaster right the industrial food system is a 12 trillion dollar industry um and there are there are problems left right and center and we 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 have to fix that and and, you know we we have to fix that today but also if you look kind of longer term climate change means that those forms of production that we see today that have issues that need addressing today they're not even viable longer term Right? Because the climate is changing so much that it's going to be impossible to grow these foods where we currently have farms located. Absolutely. So there's a desperate, desperate need for you know not just Square Roots, but many, many other companies and, and innovators and entrepreneurs and investors to get into the space and figure out how the hell are we going to feed what will be 10 billion people on the planet in 2050? Right? It isn't very long away. And we need we need a new system. How did how did you get? I know that you you we worked at the kitchen um, for a bit with your business partner. What made you really get into this? Because you speak so passionately about it, but, but you you had such a different. Like you studied at Cardiff AI and um, technology and data and everything, but you've gone such a different route to what you studied. What, what was there a turning point that made you really pivot onto this? Uh, well, I, I will answer your question, but then I'll, I'll come back. And actually, there's a big dose of artificial intelligence in, in what we're doing as well. Um, but the, the moment for me, so yeah, so I, I went to school in the UK and I did my stint at ID. Then I sort of jumped full time into the internet, um, sort of late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, long story short, ended up in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, classic story there, building early stage tech startup companies that get acquired by big companies. And one of those was acquired by Walmart, of all people. 
you know, like the, the huge grocery retailer, obviously Asda is the, the brand name in the UK. Um, and um, often with these technology acquisitions, you have to go work for the acquiring company for a period, right? So I worked at Walmart for a year. This would have been seven or eight years ago. And one of the things that they asked me to do was study global grocery buying behaviors there. And from a data science perspective, just have a look to see if their systems could be more efficient or you know, whatever it was, doesn't matter. But at, at Walmart scale, which means 300 million customers every single week doing their grocery shopping all across the world, right? You get to see a lot of data around what people are buying around the world. And, you know, what, what I saw was that people all over the world buy food from all over the world. And in order to meet that demand, that food is shipped across the world, right? The, 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 the sort of aha moment for me was when I looked at what was happening in the UK and the number one most bought grocery item on a weekly basis in the UK was bananas. Wow. And I thought, well, you know, when I was growing up in Cornwall, they sure as hell didn't grow bananas in Cornwall. Like, <laughs> where, where did this food come from, right? And you start to dig into that and, and you begin to see food being shipped all over the planet from, you know, one place to another. And then you start to think about the impact on the planet of all of that transport. And as I've said, you know, the, the quality of the food at the end of, of, of that travel isn't necessarily the best or as good as it could be. And so you think, okay, is, is there another way? And so what I thought about was, okay, instead of shipping food from one part of the planet to the other, what if we could ship environmental data from one part of the planet to the other? Oh, wow. So in other words, if, you know, let's take a crop like a basil, right? Americans love basil or basil, as they would call it, in spring pizza, and they love the Genovese basil. You know, that's their favorite one. So the, the world's best basil is grown in Genoa in the, or the Genoa region in the northwest of Italy. And we could do two things, right? One is we could ship that basil from the northwest of Italy to America, or I could study the climate in Genoa at peak basil growing season and understand, okay, what's the temperature profile in the day? How cold does it get at night? What's the CO2 level? What's happening with the nutrients in the soil? Wow. And then recreate that exact same climate, but recreate that climate in Brooklyn, in New York. That's great. Wow. And grow that same tasting, beautiful food, the same Genovese basil, but now I can get it to a supermarket that might be one mile away from my farm, right? And so you're now in a world where you can have locally grown food, but still food from all over the world, right? But it's food that's grown local, literally in the same neighborhood as the end consumer. And so you can get that food then, you know, from the farm to the supermarket shelf, literally the same day of harvest. So it's super fresh, it lasts a long time, all the nutrients are intact, there's very little transport on the supply chain. And that that that's the idea, right? It does taste completely different when you get, you know, when you literally, you know, not many people get that experience to pick something out of a field and eat it or whatever it is. And it does taste completely, completely different if you can get something from the field. You know, in our restaurants that is normally in the kitchens, but in about within five 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 hours. It'll be sitting in a kitchen. Yeah. 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 I mean, it smells great. It's going to taste great. It's going to look great. All the nutrients are still intact. Um, you know, and also, frankly, Sean, as well, you know, you probably know the grower <laughs> and you know, love, you know, the love that they put into the food, right? And, you know, Square Roots is a very technology enabled company and we recreate these environments indoors. Uh, you know, using artificial lighting and this, that, and the other. But the magic ingredient is we have farmers in the farm and they put the love into the food, right? And that, that really is what makes it taste so good. Amazing. Tobias, can I ask a question about, for instance, like with the fact that, you you know, you're creating this these atmospheres within these crates to grow um, food that wouldn't normally be, growing in a certain place at a certain time seasonality how would you know how would that um you know that because 
it, it does it affect the body? Because I know that um, you know you've got health tech and everything that's all there. How would it affect you know like in the future? Because obviously, climate change has is massively affecting us. The fact that you know all of that is there, and would it be? How would it affect us, you know, health-wise? Because, you know, I think that's also a reason why a lot of young farmers or people are, young people are getting into farming is because we are a lot more conscious about our bodies and what we're putting inside them. So how does the seasonality thing work? Yeah, I mean, effectively, because our farms are indoors, and that the term that we use is controlled climate, right? So we're maintaining the optimum climate all, all year round. If you know, the sort of pithy way to describe it is it's always in season indoors, right? It's always peak season for us. Right. So we're harvesting in our farms twice a week, 52 weeks a year, and it's always the perfect conditions. So, um, you know, effectively you, you, you're always in season right now. You know, I do get, of course, and I think about this a lot there's there's you know a romance around seasonal eating and you know what can we eat in july that's not going to be available in august and you know all of this stuff but to your point with climate change what we currently understand as seasonal ingredients you know they might not be available in five years time because the seasons are changing right so um you know my my, my thought is uh my thought is okay there's you know, we, we can create these optimal climates and then back to experience, right? Give people that beautiful experience of eating the farm fresh peak season product. But now we can do that all year round. Amazing. I love the fact that the website as well does recipes. There's a couple of recipes on there, really nice stuff that you can, that you guys grow and that it's just nice to see young people as well taking, because I mean, really growing something is, so good for your soul i mean to watch something from seed literally grow and then as you said with these farmers the love that they put into it take it from that seed and you watch it grow 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 and suddenly it's sitting on your plate is something extraordinary yeah um yeah i um uh, it's funny as a as a as a data scientist coming into this um didn't sit comfortably with me and I began to realize that, as I said, love is the sort of special ingredient in growing the food. You know, the scientist team was like, hold on, that's not tangible. Like, that can't be true. <laughs> but, but then, you know, I can go into these farms and grow the food and I'll follow the same instructions and the same recipes and do the same things as one of our farmers and their stuff just tastes better. <laughs> right? they've, got the, they, they've, got the, they've, got, they've got the love for the food. Uh, but but the young farmers, just to sort of you know talk about that for a second, right up top, you said that the average age of a farmer in the US, and I'm not sure in the UK, but in the US, the average age of a farmer is 58 years old. So in addition to all of the other problems with the food system that you know that's there, the pesticides and the pollution and you know all the rest of it, there's a demographic time bomb that's about to detonate, which is you know these 58 year olds retire in five, 10 years time. Like who the hell is going to grow the food? It's just, uh, you know, it's a big problem. And, and we sort of, when we were setting up the company, really realized that and and also saw, to, to your point, you know, young people today, Janet, um, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z, they care so much about where their food comes from and their bodies and health, certainly much more than, than our generation did, I, I would say. Yes. But, you know, how do they get started, right? How do you, you know, you're 23 year old, like, it, do you go buy a hundred acre farm in the middle of the country? Like, oh, that's not really kind of possible, right? So it's very difficult for people to, you know, follow a path and follow their dreams and their passions and and, and, and get into agriculture. And, and so what, what we did at Square Roots very early was develop a, a training program. We call it the Next Gen Farmer Training Program. And it's, you know, as you would expect, given my background, very software driven and, you know, the whole thing, very scalable. And, and basically we can work with young people who might have zero horticultural experience, right? They maybe have never grown a houseplant before, right? but if, if they've got the passion and they want to contribute to this mission and they're prepared to work hard because you still need to, we can train someone with no experience. And in about six weeks, 
they can become a very, very productive farmer um, in our system. Wow. Um, and, and so, oh, I was going to say what, what that means then is that we can open this up to any, you know, any young person who wants to contribute to the mission. Right? They don't have to come from a farming background or anything like this. They, you know, if they want to fix the food system or if they're interested in tasty food or they want to do something that's nourishing for their soul or, you know, whatever angle they're looking at, uh, we've got a way to say, come on in and we can train you very quickly and you can become like a very, very productive member of our team um, super quickly. I was reading that on your website. I think that's such a great initiative to have. And uh, I think it was saying that you give 72% back um, jobs to people that complete the program. You offer full-time employment afterwards. That, that's that's right, actually. That's incredible. That's that's, the high, that's a high percentage, really. Yeah, it's funny, actually. Uh, last night, um, I was sampling some new crops that, that were growing. We have a, a, an R&D farm, a research and development farm in Brooklyn. And um, our research and development manager started with Square Roots, I think three years ago, as a trainee farmer, right? He came in, did this great program, did very well, became a full-time member. Then when we opened a new farm up in Michigan, he went out there and helped us set that up and train that team. And now he's our you know, research and development manager. And you know, it's just one story, but it's illustrative of what we call the pathways um that we you know really think a lot about and um you know, we, we 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 often talk about growing not just food but growing people and more importantly growing future leaders in this industry right because that guy that i'm talking about maybe you know two three years he leaves square roots and sets up his own company that would also be awesome right because the these problems that we're trying to fix are so enormous that it's not just going to be square roots that fixes them, right? We need thousands of companies like ours, and that means thousands of entrepreneurs getting out there and doing it. And so if we can train those people as well, you know, the, the more of us working on this kind of real food movement, um, the, the, the better, I think. And that goes back to as well the aesthetic of of how it looks. I'm sure with the young, you know, the younger generation wanting to get into farming, if they're going to this container that's fluorescent pink with amazing it looks really like exciting and creative i'm sure that's also you know a, a plus for them to be involved in something like that it's not your typical farming as you're saying yeah i think so i mean i think the um you know i think the 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 young farmers you know they're certainly attracted um you know certainly attracted by you know the the technology i think we invested a lot in the culture um, of Square Roots. So it really is, you know, obviously I would say this as the co-founder and CEO, but like I genuinely believe it's a very wonderful place to work and you know, lots of opportunities for young people joining the company to have you know, really incredible careers with, with accelerated um, you know, sort of promotions. And um, yeah, and then you know, the other thing is our farms are in the middle of the city, right? Which is where young people want to be. Um, you know, they don't necessarily want to go live, you know, in the middle of Idaho on their own and run a, you know, 100 acre farm in the middle of nowhere. They want to be in Brooklyn so they can, you know, farm. And then at the end of the day, when it's not COVID, you know, go to a bar or go see a band or go hang out with their mates. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, like that, that's definitely a big appeal. And and as well, so many restaurateurs as well at the moment that are that are growing their own um, veg. And, you know, if you had places in the city that, you know, literally, that you you know, there's so many restaurants in the cities as well that literally it's going to go from the container to the restaurant within an hour. I mean, it's, it's insane. I mean, surely that people are just going to connect it all up together and go, this works perfectly within within cities. Um, is there any is there any plan to move like to to do something in the UK or in Europe somewhere? I would love to. Um, I would love to more. <laughs> <laughs> I think she, I think she meant Wales. <laughs> I, I'm like I'm like send send me a container. I'm, I'm ready to start growing. I'm like it's fantastic. I'm wow, like, I mean, going, oh yeah. send a plan. I'm ready to do it. Um, but, <laughs> so i mean london obviously is like you know london would just absolutely just yeah. there's i mean i know there are um a couple of growers in the east end 
um, that are kind of doing some underground stuff that are using some underground tunnels and stuff. But they're mostly it's mostly been kept to like herbs and salad leaves and all that kind of stuff. They're on some really beautiful produce. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, it would just be perfect for London. Oh, it'd be great. Yeah, actually, there, there's a, a farm I know of um, in Clapham, um, right there on the corner of Clapham Common. Um, it's called Growing Undergrade. And actually, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, okay. So they've built that. You probably know this story, right? So they've built their farm in a in a disused, um, uh, I'm going to say subway station. I forgot the name now. I've lived in the US for far too long. Tube. Tube station. Tube. Right, exactly. <laughs> Oh gosh, this is why I need to come back home. Yeah, I mean it, it's popping up. It's popping up, um, you know, everywhere. I mean, it, it's funny, really. You know, I talked about uh, you know being involved in the internet in the late nineties, and um, you know, at, at that point in time, I think you know there's a small number of people who were thinking about the internet, and you knew that this thing was inevitable. Right. But you didn't quite, you know, understand what the shape was going to be or, you know, no one could envisage Twitter or Facebook or, you know, the apps that we have today. Um, but you just jumped in and made it happen. And in many ways, indoor farming feels very much like that. You know, it's like, okay, well, this thing is inevitable because it's a disaster of a food system multiplied by climate change, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've we got to figure out a new way in indoor farming can do that. But, you know, what is this going to look like in 10 years? I don't think anyone's quite sure. Um, and, and, and as a consequence, everyone who's jumping in and trying to figure it out, whether it's square roots or growing underground or, or anybody else, it's actually a very collaborative and, and, and open um, industry as well. You know, we're all sharing tips and tricks and learning from each other. And it's actually a really wonderful place to be right now. I think, I mean, just because you said that, I mean, it is quite amazing because, you know, the, it's a modern it's modern farming but the ethos is the old ethos if you look at the the, the people that were grown on you know like if you you have an allotment or whatever the sharing of tips is so important you know in growing and in what what, what you know people sharing seeds or sharing something that they found or knew of or a really rare seed or a you know heritage stuff or whatever it is you know but people just sharing stuff and sharing tips and how to how to grow stuff i mean currently we're trying to grow tomatoes and um we had to get some uh a, a volcanic um we were trying to get some volcanic ash soil um, for these tomatoes that we're trying to grow um, and it's like but it's like you're just looking for people that know something you're going okay how you go online and you're like sharing tips now and, and that's where technology comes into it but it's amazing that you know you've got something that's so far ahead that that's still the important thing within that community is the sharing of growing tips and you know this and that yeah, you know, communities, the, uh, the the right word there, right? The sort of kernel of, of the idea that we had was strengthening communities through real food. Um, and uh, you know, all, of, all of those things that, that you talked about kind of, you know, in, in, encompass that. The, um, you know, when I think about Square Roots now, sort of four, four or five years post that, the sharing of tips and how technology can help that, you know, back, back to kind of the, the, the AI side, right? So when our farmers are in the farms you know they're obviously observing what's going on and they might make a little tweak here or there and it turns out you know this improves the texture or the yield or there's some improvement because all of our farms are cloud connected uh, so you know they're all wired into the internet and all the information is being shared across them any one farmer that uh, you know uncover some insight or some improvement can very very then quickly share that across the entire network so wherever our farms are everyone gets the benefit from that immediately Amazing. Um, and and in addition to that the farms themselves are learning right so the farms have all got sensors in and we're capturing real-time climate data and all of that is going into machine learning algorithms where the farm itself is learning also how to farm better right or how to farmers better um, so that the whole system is kind of learning how to grow more food with fewer resources in, in real time um, so like the, the whole thing is like a, a living breathing system um, 
yeah, it's pretty cool actually. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, how, can I ask, how did the idea from the containers come about? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so um, the shipping container is, you know, designed to ship food from one part of the planet to the other, right? Yes. And, and one, one of the things that it, it's very good at is maintaining a climate, right? And what we're trying to do with these indoor farms is maintain an optimum climate, right? So you get kind of a lot for free um, when you build these farms inside these upcycle shipping containers. Um, the other thing with the shipping container is that you can then deploy a farm. You can locate your farm literally anywhere, right? If there's an empty parking lot that you could put a shipping container on, great, turn it into a farm, wow. right? If there's an empty warehouse that you would back a shipping container into, great, turn it into a farm. Right? And so what that means now is we can be very, very creative when we look at existing city infrastructure and we can look at you know developments that that already exist that are maybe being underutilized and and very very rapidly turn them into farms that's amazing like have a container in brooklyn get it all ready and get it on wheels and just drive it somewhere and drop it down to another city Literally, that that that's right. And of course, wherever we wherever we're deploying these farms, they're all identical, right? So what it means then is a farmer that is really, you know, absolutely nailed how to grow. I don't know parsley, right? In Brooklyn, they they'll, they'll develop, you know, what we call the golden recipe, right? You know how to do it, the nutrients, the environment, the workflow, how to make sure it's efficient. All of that gets codified, and then that information can be shipped you know sent across the internet to any other of our farms and they too because it's an identical um you know container right with identical um sort of system inside if the person there follows the same instructions they're going to grow exactly the same amount of basil with example uh, parsley as i said with you know the same taste and the same yield and the same texture um, and and you end up with a very consistent uh, product as well, which is also um, you know kind of what people want, right? You want it to be amazingly delicious all the time, and then we're able to do that now. We should really tell the listeners as well that that that, that there's ninety percent less water used in your farming than there is in in um, traditional farming, um, which I think because. When you say ninety percent, because you think, oh, it'll be less water, but then it's like it's ninety percent less water, which is a massive amount. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you think about a field farm, right? What what happens is, you know, the the nutrients are there in the soil, but they're not really accessible to the plant until they're soluble, right? So either you know there's rain or there's irrigation or there's whatever it is, which is then you know essentially dissolving the nutrients so the plant can can get at it, right? In a in a in a field farm, that water then containing those nutrients and unfortunately also containing pesticides and herbicides then just runs off, you know, into the oceans or whatever it is, um, and it's ridiculously water intensive. Whereas in our systems, because they're indoor, controlled climate, we've um, we use what we call a, a closed loop recirculating system. Um, you know, which in plain English just means the water keeps going round and round and round, right? It, you know, feeds the farm, but anything, oh, sorry, feeds the, the plants, but anything the plant doesn't use is just captured, recirculated, um, and then feeds the next plant, right? Wow. So it, it's this beautiful closed loop system that, that ultimately means we use, you know, massively less water than, a, than, than an outdoor farm and, and never any need for any pesticides or, or, or chemicals at all. And that's healthier for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, healthier for people and healthier for planet, right? And the, Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the sort of third leg of the stool there, frankly, is it is it healthier for profits? Because, you know, we're trying to run a business and we also want to keep investing to do more of this, right? Which is sort of the, the very definition of a sustainable company, I think. You know, the, the, some people use the phrase, um, doing well while doing good, um, right? Or, or people will talk about triple bottom line businesses, thinking about things that are good for people, planet, and profits. And that that that's very much 
and how I think about square roots. Do you find that, um, obviously, because of the size of the container, you're slightly limited in what you can grow in the product. Do you think that, like, further down the line, you want to ex ex explore and expand to grow different things? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's a very good question, actually. So um, we have grown about 140 different varieties in our farms, right? All of the herbs, all of the leafy greens, you know, lettuces, spinach, kale, arugula, or rocket. Um, the, um, you know, we've grown strawberries and tomatoes. We've grown um, what I am going to call an eggplant, and I'm struggling. Aubergine. Of the British, <laughs> an aubergine, <laughs> right? Oh my God, I really have been here too long. <laughs> I'm loving this, I'm loving this. <laughs> We've grown aubergines and turnips and carrots and, and all sorts of wonderful things. Um, now, with, without kind of getting too lost in the science and, and making sure that every listener just presses stop. Um, <laughs> but, but very qu quickly, what happens is as, as the plant's growing, it, it's basically taking energy from a light source and converting that into biomass, right? And so um, the more biomass you're trying to create, the heavier the vegetable, um, the more energy is required. And our energy comes from these, um, you know, the beautiful pink lights that you've described. And obviously that costs money, right? So the sort of heavier the vegetable, the more biomass we're trying to produce, the more energy is required. And that means it ends up being a more expensive product, right? So something like herbs and leafy greens, you know, not too much biomass, doesn't need that much energy, you can get that product to market at a price that you know beets organic is you know more or less the same as conventional and people will buy that if you want to grow a turnip you know i can grow it for you but there's so much biomass there that it needs so much energy that it would just be too expensive for, for us to do that today right no one would buy much the, the the good news though and this is where again you kind of geek out as a technologist is that um we we will get there and, you know, if you think about being an outdoor farmer, you can't suddenly look at the sun and make it twice as efficient and reduce your costs, right? Whereas as an indoor farmer, you can look at the system. You can look at the lighting system and what you're doing with climate and how long do you make it daytime in the farm? You've got all these things at your control and you can bring the, the cost down, right? And so... You know, the, the way I kind of think about it is, um, you know, walk into a, a supermarket in England and line up every single fruit and vegetable from the lightest to the heaviest. And that is essentially our roadmap for the next 20 years. Right. We will eventually get to all of them. Um, and, you know, I would say next for us, the, the strawberries that, that we grow are pretty delicious probably a little bit too expensive right now but we're within the you know we're, we're within shooting distance of being able to to launch um you know price competitive strawberries from these farms as well which is going to be very exciting because then you know imagine this shot and you're going to love this right so you know you're in wales it's February. there's a foot of snow outdoors um and you can walk into your farm and harvest a locally grown strawberry I mean, the truth is, is what people won't realise is that, so, okay, I'm here, I'm actually in Wales at the moment. There is snow outside. The only thing that we've got left here, I mean, we have some cattle that, that we have our own um, that basically are completely grass-fed, everything, our, 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 uh, our black, our Welsh black beef. Um, but we have, as far as like, our vegetables go, we're literally on the dregs of what's left of... Um, maybe some just some brassicas that are left like maybe a couple of sprouts left but there's that's as we're done and for me my mind is just literally going you know if i had the combination of both together on a small i'm just thinking i'm like could you see a future with that you know there would be a, a, a part of traditional farming alongside this new technology as well there's no doubt in in my mind, right? I don't... To me, I'm literally like I'm literally going. That's for me. That's the dream, you know. I have both side by side, and that's how I'm gonna live. We could have smaller farms, um, not taking up as much land, and you could have the combination of both together and just putting out the best produce you possibly could. 
Yeah, that that that's totally the way that I see it as well. You know, I don't see indoor farming as the only way. The only way, nope. Um, and I, I think the you know the the, the combination is is one hundred percent the right way to do it. And frankly, you know, as I think about square, it's like we learn as you know, you were talking about allotments earlier, right? And people sharing tips and tricks, and you know, we'll learn from field farmers as much as we do from other indoor farmers, right? There's you know millennia of experience of growing beautiful crops in the right way, and uh, you know we're not doing anything different right we're, we're creating the environment indoors to grow those things but um you know we'll we'll often talk with you know very experienced field farmers and you know understand the the sort of learnings that they've had and, and try to incorporate that into our system as well it's kind of weird because it feels so much like the way we make records nowadays um you know because i remember like you know i've, I've been a musician I put my first record out in 1989 and technology changed so massively in the way we made records back then like when we were using like half inch and quarter inch tape and everything and there was these big machines and you could only make them in studios and it cost a lot of money and you know there'd be a lot of people involved and the cost was unbelievably high I mean we can make records now like relatively cheap but you know the expense goes on the technology the technology that you know we can have a laptop as long as we've got a laptop a couple of plugins we can make digital records literally like digital recordings that then get mixed in a in a studio but it, it was there was the point where you know everybody be like oh you can only do it this way or oh you can only do it that way but what's happened is the combination you will always need you know, as you said about the farmers and these young farmers that come in, you'll always need the farmer alongside with that love with the technology. And it's kind of like how we make records now of like the technology kind of adapts alongside the reality of what it is we need and what it is we, we're, we're looking to, to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, th I, think, I think that's a good analogy. And then, you know, implicit, in what in what you said there is that the you know the crafts people at the center of this you know the songwriters in your case right also you know it pays to be open-minded to go along with these technology advances absolutely right they're not you know destroying the the the, the craft or um you know in any way diminishing the magic of you know that perfect song that that's written and it's the same way with us you know we got this super high-tech indoor farm at the end of the day though the product the, the fresh produce that we're you know selling here it it has to taste amazing otherwise no one's going to buy it and the whole thing doesn't work right and and so making sure that we have beautiful product at the end of every day that that is the most important thing that that we do right and our entire business is, is geared up to make sure that that happens has being in covid helped um like companies come to you rest businesses come to you because you've got the indoor farming yeah it, it's been a very interesting year actually you know obviously as it has for, for everybody um you know and we're just sort of you know new administration is coming into america this week off the back of four hundred thousand deaths and you know record cases and um uh, it doesn't even need to add any more to the fact it's been the most awful year um specific to square roots and, and the food system actually what 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 happened as covid kind of kicked into gear here last april was we we had empty supermarket shelves right because all of that food that's grown in california and arizona and then it's shipped across the country all of those supply chains just just broke down right there were people that were sick left right and center the farmers couldn't get people into the field safely to harvest the food and so it was just left there to rot um and you know as, as a consequence um, you know, there's been a real acceleration of the adoption of indoor grown food this year because, you know, we can guarantee a consistent supply of quality food, right? And then once, once you've got that on supermarket shelves and the customers get used to buying it and they taste that beautiful taste and smell that beautiful aroma and 
because the food is so fresh, it lasts a long time in their refrigerator and they don't have a mountain of food waste at the end of the week. And then they just want to buy more of that, right? So kind of, yeah, we, 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 um, you know, in all of the chaos and the sadness and the, you know, the, whatever else has happened this year, if I'm just looking at this purely from a business perspective, um, we've, we've sort of, you know, managed to do, um, um, you know, some, some really interesting and, and, and good things this year, actually. We'll probably get food to people that, because I was, I mean, obviously I'm in the UK at the moment, but I went back to New York. I left in March to come back to the UK when the pandemic started, but I came back in September. Um, and even then going a few times to my supermarket, there was things that weren't stocked there. It is the exact same in the UK. And, and it's, and the same in the UK. Mm-hmm. The Saturday I got back, I think it was March the 13th, I flew. Um, and on the, the next day in the supermarket, just the, the pandemic of people trying to just shop and, and panic buy was frightening. And there was nothing left on the shelves. Forget, um, um, I nearly said it now, arugula, uh, rocket uh, and all. <laughs> it's, it's, it wasn't there. Um, so it's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, none of that's going to be helped by Brexit either, right? Because, you know, I don't know what the number is, but I think, you know, the UK imports, what, 70-odd to 80% of the food or something, yeah, you know, the majority exactly. of that comes from the EU. And, well, guess what? That's a lot harder now. Um, you know, the, the other thing that happened during COVID, which was, was pretty interesting, is that because the consumer was suddenly forced to stay at home and cook, Right, you can't go out to restaurants anymore. You got to stay home, and cook a meal for your family. Right, what you know in the U.S. pre-COVID, I think something like fifty-five percent of all dining dollars was spent in restaurants. Right, basically we ate out in restaurants more than we cooked at home, and that that com- that completely changed. Right, and so now all of a sudden people are forced to do their shopping, which means they're getting more curious about what they're buying and they're seeing it act of buying quality fresh food and how long that lasts versus you know kind of other forms um and so there's you know what maybe a year ago was a kind of niche real food movement with wow you know very well-meaning you know people trying to buy local you know now that's suddenly become a mainstream movement um you know everybody understands you know why local food is is better um, and, and I think that that's helped the indoor farming industry as well. Yeah, it has had a big effect as well on local um, shops as well here in the UK. I don't know if that still is the, the situation in the States, but literally rather than people going to massive big supermarkets, um, they've been shopping locally and, you know, on a, on a weekly basis, uh, week to week, just every couple of days, just doing a little bit of a shop. And there's definitely less wastage. Well, less wastage, and you know, I'd like to think that people also understand that you can keep, you know, keep your money in the local economy. You know, many, many millions of people have their job through this. You know, right? So keep the money in your local economy. Exactly. Um, you know, strength to back to strengthening community through food. Right? That sort of tagline that I said. Another illustration of that. Yeah, you're so right on that. Now, the big question I have for you: Do you still love football? <laughs> soccer, yeah. yeah. Soccer. Uh, so, yeah. Soccer. No football. <laughs> soccer. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. To be to be honest, if I'm a massive sports fan, I love football. I love cricket. Um, and uh, I was up very early this morning listening to Test Match Special um, England <laughs> right now. And uh, I must admit, I don't follow American sports at all. I think when I moved here, I didn't really expect to be here for twenty years. You know, so I didn't. Um, I, you know, I kept reading The Guardian and following the BBC and uh, <laughs> and I can tell you everything about the Tottenham Hotspur under-19s, you know, left back and what he's doing today. And I couldn't tell you who's in the Super Bowl or when the World Series is over. Wow. Who's your team, Charlene? You, you've got a team. I'm, um, my Scottish team is Celtic. Okay. And um, my um, English team is Arsenal. Oh. 
because when yeah when I left Glasgow um I moved to I, I moved to North London um so when I left Glasgow back in the day and because um I went to live in uh in Exmouth Market like literally just where the face was um when it was when it was still an old pit and um it's Karina nose um and and um I went there to live and because Arsenal was the the team at that because it's Islington near Islington um and also because Charlie Nicholas champagne Charlie Nicholas played for Arsenal ah, so yes. that was my connection and I became a, I became an Ars that was it an Arsenal fan I was like so I've stuck I've stuck with Arsenal the Gunners yeah, well, my dad is actually a season ticket holder at our office. He's not using that right now. But, uh, yeah, and nobody's really happy at the moment. Yes. On our weekly, um, you know, video chats with, with the family, there's often uh, <laughs> there's often a little bit of banter. Um, <laughs> I'm normally on the wrong end of it. <laughs> well, that's it. That's what I'm a Chelsea supporter. The Chelsea. I'll just throw that in. I mean, that's, oh that's, that's really bad. I grew up, my father, because we're actually, I'm actually in my my family house in Ballam, and I know that farm in Clapham you were talking about, the growing underground, Um, but I was raised a Chelsea supporter, so sorry, guys. For your sins. For my sins. (laughs) She was so promising for so many years, and then she tells you she's a Chelsea fan, you just go, oh. Oh, good God. So, the thing is, is like to me in my brain is you're so not a Chelsea fan, like because it's you. I'm going, how can she possibly be a Chelsea fan? Anyway. I actually don't care, quite frankly, but it makes my father happy. So <laughs> <laughs> he needs someone to shout the TV with. Well, Tobias, thank you so much. Oh my gosh, this was this was just mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing, all of this. It's so fascinating what you're doing. It's fantastic. Thank you. It's fun as well, um, you know. I, I must admit, and um, you know, anyone who's running a startup company will understand the stresses and strains that come with that. But you know, when you can take a walk out to the farm at any point in time and <laughs> go smell the beautiful food and chat with the farmer, it's certainly a nice environment to be working Absolutely. in. I, I can I ask you one very last question? Just one. Sure. Do the pink fluorescent lights ever change colour? Would you ever put different fluorescent lights in? Or they pink for a specific reason? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So uh, basically the, the spectrum of the lights, right, they're, they're giving it that pink hue, that, that's what the plant wants, right? That's what the plant uh-huh. takes. So um, you know, we could put a white light in those farms, right? So it kind of looks like daylight. Uh, but essentially you'd be, you'd be sending spectrum to the plant that it's not absorbing and wouldn't use. So it's just wasted resource, right? So we're, we're basically only giving the plant the spectrum of light that it needs. And therefore we're using the minimum amount of, of, of light and therefore energy to grow that plant, right? And again, it's all this, you know, how do we do this in the most responsible way? Make sure that we're growing as much food as we can with the, the fewest resources. So that that's why those lights look. Oh well, they look fantastic. Sorry, Charlene, you were going to say something. Completely forgot because I get so taken in by that because I was literally thinking, yeah, and I understood how why the light was pink anyway. So yeah, yeah. Some people have said it. We we look like the Studio Fifty Four of farming. And yes. And why the that. hell shouldn't you? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> we just need Grace Jones to ride through naked on a horse and turn that. Oh yeah, no, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say I cannot wait to come to New York and come to Brooklyn because I am definitely coming to visit you. I'm literally beside myself because I want to just see it and smell it. I know, like as soon as you walk in the doors, you're just going to be like taken over by this amazing aroma. You've you've got it in one. I would look forward so much to that. Uh, not just an opportunity to meet you in person and show you around, but that also means that we're allowed to travel again. Yeah, that's very true. Let us all look forward to that moment. Yeah, cannot wait. Cannot wait. Yes, no, onwards and upwards. Thank you for always listening to our podcasts. And it was great to have my co-host Charlene back. Our next guest is someone I also met at Inception of Mission a few years ago. Someone who out of the blue called me on a rainy New York Sunday morning asking if I wanted to go to Botswana in a few days time. I had never been before, so of course I did. 
Our next guest has been selected as one of the most powerful minds by Forbes in 2013 and again in 2014. She talks to us about how she managed with a very full-on career, being a single mother at a very young age, meeting foreign leaders in different countries, such as Dubai. One of her past careers was serving as a senior advisor to the UN Office for Partnerships under the leadership of UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Please tune in to our next podcast where we speak to Annette Richardson. Thank you, everybody. Take care and be well.